Hello there, and welcome to the latest instalment in Invivo's podcast series. I'm Jo Shorthouse from Invivo, and I'm joined today by Dr. Ian Smith and Chris Dodd from the site management organisation Panthera Biopartners. Ian Smith is the co-founder, director and the chief medical officer of the SMO, while Chris Dodd is the chief commercial officer. Ian founded the world's first independent clinical trials organisation, Synexus, while still practising as a GP. Today, Ian's a non-executive director for many other healthcare companies and was recognised for his service to the clinical trials industry by receiving an MBE in 2012. Chris was previously head of commercial at AES, where he led the world's largest commercial team on site and patient access. He's also worked at Medtronic, BD and Brackett Global, which is now part of Signet Health. I can't think of anyone better to talk to about some of the main issues facing clinical trials today, such as the age-old issue of clinical trial recruitment and retention, decentralised trials and where the future of clinical trials might be heading. Um, But first, I just wanted to talk about Panthera Biopartners and ask Ian, can you just explain exactly what Panthera does for those who don't know what uh, what the SMO model is and where you fit into that? So you mentioned my uh, founding of Synexus in, in the 90s and um, Panthera sits in that same space. The idea back in the 90s was to, if you like, commercialise the recruitment of patients in, into clinical trials, to formalise the recruitment of them. So to really to get rid of the opportunistic recruitment of of patients which basically depended on a clinician being with a potentially suitable patient purely by chance. Um, In the SMO model, whether it's Panthea or anybody else, um, we are not providing clinical service, so we don't see patients for any other reason other than their potential for taking part in 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 the clinical in the clinical trial. So it's a completely different model. Worldwide, it's safe to say that the vast majority of patients are still recruited opportunistically, which is why, you know, in a typical study, you'll have hundreds, even thousands of investigator sites, because the investigators are clinicians who are recruiting one or two patients opportunistically during the recruitment window of a study. That obviously is fundamentally different to what we do. So we would identify patients through either through their primary care, care of their GP, uh, or through social media uh, and, and advertising. And really those three have been the sort of... Uh, key means of getting patients into the Panthera site and they, they work extremely, extremely well. So what um, what locations is Panthera in then? Is it just the UK at the moment? It, it's the UK, but we can explain a little bit more about that and maybe Chris Dodd, my colleague, could, could just run through that for you, Joe. Um, he's been very much involved in our uh, the uh, activities outside the UK. Yeah, sure. So we have a network of sites in the UK that we've been establishing over the space of the last three to four years. We also have uh, 
partnerships in place in Scandinavia as well. So in Sweden in particular, we've got three to four sites that we are working very closely with under the same delivery sort of structure, if you like. So there's an MSA in place. We we support them in patient access. And it's the same principle in Sweden as it is in the UK, that we're trying to, I guess, increase the predictability of getting patients, therefore making it easier for sponsors to try and manage our sites and manage our potential delivery relative to a feasibility. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Now, I was um, I was reading a study that um, Panthera had uh, commissioned and published in November last year um, with data that showed that the SMO model run by Panthera can reduce startup times for phase two and phase three by nine months, which seems like a huge amount to me. I mean, if you think about how nine months worth of revenue is for a drug on the market, it's, it's huge. So this was um, nine months compared to UK public sites, so run by N- 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 NHS sites. Um, can you just talk me through how that nine month difference was achieved? Where are the, where are the kind of the sweet spots? Um. I'll start that off, uh, Joe. Um, <clears throat> you have to remember that in, in the NHS, there's a particular part of the approval process called the R&D approval. Mm-hmm. And we, fortunately, as an independent commercial organisation, uh, are not involved in the R&D approval process. And that can delay a study by many, many months. Okay completely detached from the MHRA regulatory approval and from the central ethics, which in themselves can take, you know, two or three months. But but in our experience, our R&D timelines can be horrendous. And, and mm. you know, that's, that's a pretty negative feature for clinical research in the UK, quite frankly. Um, fortunately, it doesn't affect us, and that's one of the main reasons why we are so much quicker. I think another reason is that we can respond to a feasibility request within 48 hours. You know, we're an an independent organization. Feasibility, for example, feasibility contract negotiations, budgets and everything are done at our head office. They're not done at our sites. Mm. And uh, we can turn those around in a matter of days. And I don't know if you have any experience of contract negotiations within the NHS. Thankfully, no. (laughs) Thankfully, I don't. (laughs) I have known one that took four years to get a contract signed for an athlete's foot study in in the NHS. So, you know, I think that's a fairly impressive um, time to get a contract signed. So so feasibility budgets and contracts for for us are a few days, a week, easily. Mm. That puts us months ahead of... uh, NHS sites, we just simply can't do it, of course. I mean, but you can you can understand if you've got 500 NHS sites involved in a study, mm. got something to say about the contract, mm. something to say about the price, and uh, the whole thing that can go on for, for months and months. I think from my perspective, what I would say here is that the, the principles that we're looking to apply when it comes to patient access and in running trials apply in the same way when it comes to the initiation of a trial. So what I mean by that is we professionalise and industrialise the way in which we access patients. We also do exactly the same thing when it comes to study startup. So we have a team of people that work full-time on contracts, a team of project managers that work full-time on 
the startup of the study. We've got a team of people that are there pre-identifying patients as we're doing the contract. So when when we're talking about that, you know, that nine-month window that's quoted in the previous mm. in the previous uh, studies, we're in a position whereby we can qualify that based on the feedback from our sponsors, and we can also explain why it would take three months less to do an R&D approval process for a for our sites which don't have a official process versus others it's the same with the budgets and contracts and feasibility and startup pssvs sivs the green lighting of the site all of these things we as a commercial organization are driving the timelines we're actually pushing the sponsors or the cro's for the earliest date available to get these done whereas the nhs just don't have that bandwidth or that capacity to, to industrialise and to drive those timelines, which means that they happen organically in, a, in an organisation which is already under stress on clinical delivery. The, the comparisons as a consequence are quite stark, as you mentioned. Yeah, and of course the NHS is under even more pressure at the moment post-COVID um, with, you know, kind of assignment of budgets and things like that. I'm sure it's, um, you know, kind of going to the elective waiting list is, is more important than perhaps doing studies. Yes. I mean, so recruiting patients into clinical trials is not the primary focus of the NHS. Of course, yeah. And frankly, it shouldn't be. And yeah. it never will be. It's our only focus. And I think just to sort of round off that section about the sort of startup mm. times. As we mentioned earlier, our patient recruitment is formalised. It's not opportunistic. So we don't wait until, you know, the CRFs arrive and everything's been done before we start to develop a plan for recruiting the patients mm. and indeed having some of them ready to bring in for appointments. Uh, and, and that puts us, again, you know, months ahead of, of the sites that are only recruiting opportunistically because they're waiting for a clinic to start and hoping that during that clinic a, a, a potentially suitable patient might, might arrive by chance. Yeah. By the time the NHS sites are able to get up and running, the probability is that we've already contributed more patients than they will do in the entire recruitment window. So oh. because we have pre-identified patients greenlit the sites and then taken those patients through pre-screening, screening and randomization. The two or three or four patients that a typical NHS site might deliver on a typical study, we've already randomized, like I said, before they've opened their doors. So the principle here is it's about speed and predictability. It's also about accountability. So when we commit our feasibility to deliver a 10 or 15 or 20 patient contribution, if we don't do that, we don't make the revenue that we need to do to function as a business. Mm -hmm. So it's essential for us in the same way as it is for the sponsor that we deliver what we say we're going to do because our budgets are built upon that and our survival as an organisation is based upon our ability to deliver against feasibility. I guess for public sector sites, they don't have that same pressure because they are not funded by the revenue generated from clinical trials. Yes. But of course, this isn't to take anything away from the NHS, is it? It's doing a, it's, it's doing a wonderful job. We're not here to, uh, to criticise the NHS in any way. Not, not at all. And, and, you know, let me remind you, that's where I started. Yes. Where the idea of formalising uh, the recruitment of patients came from. Mm. I was trying to recruit patients opportunistically in a busy GP clinic. And quite frankly, it was a nightmare. 
It must have been quite frustrating if, if, if you wanted to, to, to get yeah. these patients into a trial. You know, in an afternoon clinic, when you've got 30 patients to see and towards the end of the clinic, a potential patient arrives for a complex migraine study, mm -hmm. you don't know whether to put the random, you know, start talking to the patient about the trial and making all the other patients in the waiting room late mm. or, or just give up. Right. There's another piece to this as well. I think part of Panthera's evolution over the last four or five years is to become a harmonious partnership with the NHS. Right. I don't think we see this as NHS versus Panthera or SMO versus NHS. We're in a scenario where, you know, I guess we look at the UK as a whole and there is bandwidth issue, there is external pressure to deliver clinically and we're in a position where as a country it, you know access to research for our patients is at risk the, the ideal scenario here is that we do partner with nhs primary care sites we do partner with the nihr and we just do everything we can to make as many patients as aware as possible of where research sites are and we work together to optimize and maximize access to research so yeah Working harmoniously moving forward is the best way to get UK patients access to research. Definitely, definitely. It's so important, isn't it? Um, talking of the NIH um, that, you just, that you just mentioned there, Chris, um, I, was, I was looking at a study the other day and it was saying that um, they studied 41 NIH-registered clinical trials and they found that only one-third of those studies met their patient recruitment goals. So we're, we're hearing a lot of to hear a lot about data analytics when it comes to high tech patient recruitment. Let's just call it that. Um, you know, strategies that include um, automation or EMR integration, things like that. But I guess nothing really beats immersion into a community, as I as I believe Panthera has. You know, you're kind of immersed into a community, and you 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 already have a a, a good knowledge of um, patients. In, in the community and ways of recruiting them and, and, and retaining them. Yeah, and I think, you know, where we are based, you know, Preston and Sheffield, etc., the, the local primary care community gets to know us very, very well. Yeah. And, and you know, the vast majority, the vast majority of GP and our sites have nothing whatsoever to do with clinical research. Mm -hmm. So it's for their patients to at least think about taking part and helping in clinical trials. Patients are very keen to do that. Mm. You know, the, the, there's a powerful minority of the population that are really keen on helping with, uh, you know, the future of, of medicine in the UK. And it's, I suppose you could call it altruism, if you like. Yeah. Now, if your, your GP has nothing whatsoever to do with clinical research, you haven't got a chance mm. unless you've got an organization like Panthera. Now, you know, we can get to those primary care patients through things like Facebook or direct advertising, mail shots and things like that. But of course, we can also get through to them by working with the GPs so that the GPs become happy to send their patients, let's stick with migraine, send their migraine patients an email saying that, you know, the Panthera Biopartners are doing a, a clinical trial in Sheffield, we're based in a primary care facility, in Preston, we're based in a primary care facility. 
you know, if you're interested in going to talk to them, ring this number. Mm-hmm. So at least, you know, there's some element of primary care activity going on there. Well, in fact, 100% of our patients come from primary care, whether they come from an advertisement or, you know, a Facebook entry, it doesn't matter. Everybody's got a GP. Mm-hmm. And at the point of consenting to take part in the study, we inform the GPs that we've seen their patient. And we also ask them for some source data verification about that patient, past medical history and things like that. So that, the, you know, the whole process is absolutely watertight from a quality uh, perspective. I think it's fair to say, Ian, as well, isn't it, that, that the sort of data management and the level of sophistication behind lead management or patient candidate management is something that we've been focused on alongside being integrated into the healthcare communities. And what I mean by that is that we have a full project management team with allocation to every single study that we run, and they are tracking the performance of our GP leads versus our own proprietary database versus, you know, the advertisements that we're running, whether it's social media or otherwise, and all the way through from the top of that sort of patient funnel going down to people, you know, the number of people that ring our professional call centre, those that pass the telescreen questionnaire there onto the chats and screens and runs. So we're constantly measuring and monitoring performance from the various different sources that we've got and then making sure that we blend them in accordance with what is the most cost and time efficient. So this is... what What's now emerging in the marketplace is something that we've been doing for a long time already. Yeah. Yeah, it's that community that, that, that you guys have built up over the years is so important. It is, and it, it's being able to track those patients and knowing... When we talk about strategic patient access as opposed to opportunistic, it isn't just right at the initiation of that. It's not just when we first engage these patients. It's knowing what percentage will flow through to randomizations or to screens or to the various stages so that when we do partner with pharma or biotech or CRO and they're asking about how do we hit those feasibility numbers, how do we avoid the same trap of only delivering on a third of our sites or a third of the numbers, the, the reality is that we've been professionalising the patient access pathway and we've been tracking performance in the various different mechanisms for, for decades now and we've been optimising that year on year on year. So our ability to predict our own performance is way superior to that of most of the other sites out there. If we could um, talk a little bit, I'd like to get your opinion on decentralised trials. Um, if possible, because we're hearing so much about these at the moment. There's been a lot um, written about them, and um, I think particularly post-pandemic, if we can say that we are post-pandemic, I think maybe possibly we can, um, you know, given the fact that people understandably feel a lot less comfortable visiting healthcare locations, such as hospital or trial sites, is this decentralised trial, is, it, is, is, is the interest in decentralised trials, is that manifesting itself into your reality at the moment? Is there any... Any experience that you can share from Panthera? My view might be a little bit too cynical, but... Um, <laughs> no, carry on, cynical is welcome. <laughs> you know, you're right, Joe. I mean, we've been talking about decentralised cynical trials, I'm, I'm going to say, for about a decade now. Right. And Chris and I have met organisations who only do that. They, right. they sit to help run 
decentralized study. So they don't have any research sites. They have um, hundreds of nurses, but you know they don't have venues uh, that the patients can attend. And we've had some conversations about maybe blending those to our model and their model. Um, you know, quite a few of those companies have come and gone. Mm. And if we look at the portfolio of studies that we work on, you know, speaking as the chief medical officer, I mean, I, I just don't see how you can decentralise them. You know, if you're if you're doing a full physical examination of a patient at the start of a study, uh, an ECG, multiple bloods, uh, a, a liver fibre scan, a chest X-ray, um, an exercise test. How can you decentralise that? Mm. You, you you absolutely cannot. You, yeah. know, you can't do a, a liver fibre scan. Well, unless you're going to take the machine to the patient's house, <laughs> which you could do. But I mean, the cost of that would be absolutely monumental. Mm. Uh, and you know, you'd be able to do one fibre scan in the morning and one in an afternoon. Subject to the distance between the two patients, you know. Mm. Um, so we, we, yes, we, what we see as the way forward, uh, and in fact we're instigating this in one or two of our studies, is there's no doubt that some visits can be virtual visits. Yes. You know, if, if, if you're doing a, a three-month follow-up on a patient that's established on a clinical trial, and there are no bloods involved, so you're just making sure the patient's okay, issuing medication, which of course can be done by post anyway. Mm. Um, yes, you, you you can do some of those studies, and and we talked just last week. Uh, Chris and I were at a meeting where, you know, when when we see a, a patient for the first time, it's usually the first time we've seen that patient at all. So you know that first visit for us is critically important. Because that's that's the first time we start to get information from that patient and start to be able to assess their suitability for taking part in a clinical trial. And by suitability, I don't just mean do they fulfil the NX criteria. I mean, are they suitable? Right. Um, you know, are they the right type of person that should be taking part? And you know, it would be a, a whole separate podcast to talk about <laughs> suitability. Um, and we've looked at doing initial com initial consultations like that virtually as well to put down patient travel and, and maybe improve the number the numbers of patients who will take that initial step to talk to us mm. you know because for us until we speak to the patient we, we haven't got a hope in hell of recruiting them into a trial of course you, you know and we used to think and certainly i used to think that being somewhat old-fashioned that the face-to-face -face consultation was the be-all and end-all. I think we've matured since then, since the pandemic, since, I mean, GPs are seeing patients, so, you know, we shouldn't really worry about that too much. And I think we will gradually, over certainly this year, we will increase the number of virtual contacts we have with patients. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, another example is, you know, once you've, once you've done the masses of work necessary to get the patient to the point of being given their medication so you'll see them for a review of their ecg and all the tests they've had answer any questions they've got the certain certain elements of that could be done virtually as well yes you know we're not currently doing that but we don't have any 
opposition to that, and it, indeed, you know, we can see clear advantages. You know, it improves utilization at our sites, for example. You know, if we're not bringing every single visit into the building, you know, mm. we have a capacity which clearly that would that would um, ease the burden. When I, when I think about decentralised trials versus, I guess, the conventional site-based trial, the middle ground is a hybrid offering. Yeah. And I think we're really well equipped to offer a hybrid offering. And I think the rationale behind either a hybrid or a decentralised offering is that more patients can be obtained and more patients can be given access to clinical trials from a single site. Now, that's the fundamental ethos of Panthea as an organisation, we want to be driving, you know, more patients through one of our sites, and whether that's virtually or whether that's on site or whether it's a combination of the two. What we what we're thinking about in these scenarios is what is best for the patient, what is best for the data of that patient. In other words, how do we retain the data quality? How do we retain the patient full stop on these clinical trials? And how do we make this as cost-effective as possible for the drug companies as well? Because I guess if it is cost-effective, time-effective for the patients, good for patient retention, and, and you get that increased access per site, then overall that's about as efficient as I believe we can make a clinical trial. Can I just talk to you about the future and fundraising um, for Panthera? Because back in April, um, I believe you raised $10 million in investment from... BGF and Gresham House Ventures um, to grow your network. So could you just just tell me how that growth is going and what your growth priorities are going to be for the next couple of years? The whole idea of our organisation is that we want to be able to provide a level of support for sponsors that is beyond tactical and edging into the strategic sort of sphere. So what I mean by that is instead of us being two or three sites that can help a sponsor in Europe, we want to be, or the UK, forgive me, should I say, we want to be in a position where we can say to them, we will give you 20 or 30 or 40% of all of your European contributions, which is a much more tactical discussion. And at that stage, we're able to influence the entire timelines of a study delivery and to influence the entire patient demographic that they're going for. So the funding that we raised was to allow us to basically take our existing platform and relatively quickly expand upon that so that we become that strategic partner. Now, I would say a proportion of that is directly allocated to growth. We've talked about our footprint in Sweden. Yeah. We do have other countries outside of Scandinavia that we're also looking for expansion as well. But I would also say some of this is about reinforcing our existing sites and making sure that the growth that we do achieve is done so responsible. Right. So, over the last two or three years, we've worked really, really hard to make sure that we are different to those sites that are only delivering, you know, one in three good sites, or each site is only delivering one third or a half of the patients that have contributed. Now, to professionalise clinical research the way that we do with the call centre and the nursing doctor staff, all the support staff, takes time and effort. So what we're trying to do here is make sure that every one of our sites that we offer can give as many patients as possible, is staffed to the full, has all the right technology in place and implemented. So what I would say is from that initial investment that you've seen there, expect growth, but expect responsible growth so that we maintain the level of quality that you know has given us the success we've had today to get that funding. Wonderful. So it sounds like it's 
onwards and upwards for Panthera in the next in the next couple of years, which is great to hear. So that's wonderful. Um, that brings me to the end of my questions for you guys today. So thank you so much for for joining me. I've really I really uh, enjoyed our chat, and I appreciate your time. So thank you for joining me.